You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. I host the show each week as we take a look at the political situations going on here in the United States. And I uh, just want to welcome everyone to the show. And let's, uh, let's get started, as we always do, with a recap of where we stand in terms of the COVID uh, pandemic still raging in our country. Uh, currently, there are 42.1 million cases of COVID-19 reported, uh, with 673,500 people who have died from the disease, and a total of 383 million uh, vaccinations have been administered, including both two-dose and one-dose uh, shots given. Uh, the, the pandemic continues to plague uh, many areas of the country, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that right now. Uh, the first thing I want to bring up is uh, something that I heard uh, over the weekend, a uh, report that came out from the Associated Press, and it talks about uh, something uh, that's going on in the state of Idaho that could be a bellwether for what may happen in more and more areas of the country and that is something called a crisis standards of care so what does that mean well as you know as we've covered and as the news has been covering in many parts of the country uh, intensive care units and icu beds uh, are you know in short supply as more and more uh, covid patients are being admitted and treated for covid19 uh, as we've talked about, uh, the overwhelming majority, uh, well better than 90% of them, are uh, individuals who either uh, did not follow you know, proper safety protocols like masking and distancing or uh, did not get vaccinated against the disease. Well, the impact of that has, has been discussed uh, in many sources in the media uh, as well as here on this show is you know an answer to the question what happens when the icu beds run out well what happens is something that we're going to talk about a little bit uh, because an article as i said that was in the associated press and came out on the 17th of september uh you know a couple of days ago as we record this show and it came out of boise idaho and basically what we have is a situation where uh, because of the, the overwhelming uh, consumption of ICU beds by COVID patients, uh, hospitals in Idaho and in, in some other states we'll talk about in a minute uh, are facing a, a unique and scary uh, proposition. And that is they are having to rank people who will receive uh, life-saving treatment based on a standard of care that uh, prioritizes people based on uh, age and survivability, among other things. But let's get into it and talk a little bit. Uh, as the article states, you know, it's the spread of the Delta variant uh, continues, you know, unabated in much of the U.S. Uh, public health leaders um, are having to approve health care rationing 
uh, in the state of Idaho, as well as parts of Alaska and Montana. At least five more states, according to the article, and these are Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Texas, are nearing capacity with more than 90% of their intensive, intensive care units full, uh, according to data from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So what that means is that due to the spike in the number of unvaccinated COVID-19 patients requiring hospitalization, crisis standards of care uh, are being implemented to allow healthcare providers to give scarce resources like ventilators to the patients most likely to survive. Uh, so, you know, in looking at that, the, the idea of how this crisis is applied. So with that being said, uh, the, you know, the critical question is, number one, what are crisis standards of care? Uh, crisis standards of care, and again, according to the article, uh, give legal and ethical guidelines to healthcare providers when they have too many patients and not enough resources to care for them all. Essentially, uh, they spell out exactly how healthcare should be rationed in order to save the most lives possible during a disaster. Uh, some healthcare rationing steps have become commonplace during the pandemic with hospitals postponing elective surgeries and some physicians switching to online visits rather than seeing patients in person. But more serious steps, such as deciding which patient, patients must be treated in a normal hospital room or intensive care bed and which patients can be cared for in a hospital lobby or classroom, have been rare. At the extreme end of the spectrum, crisis standards of care generally use scoring systems to determine which patients get ventilators or other life-saving medical interventions and which ones are treated with pain medicine and other palliative care until they recover or die. So, you know, it, 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 the article raises this question, of what is the scoring system and, you know, what are things like uh, they call tiebreakers? Uh, states may use a combination of factors to come up with patient, quote, priority scores, close quote. Idaho and Montana's system both consider how well a patient's major organ systems are functioning. Patients with indications of liver or kidney damage, poor oxygen and blood clotting levels, and the inability to respond to pain because they are in a coma have higher scores. Both states also score people based on saving the highest number of, quote, life years, close quote. So if a person has cancer or another illness that is likely to impact their future survival, they get a higher score. The lower a patient's score, the more likely they are to survive, moving them toward the front of the line for ventilators and other resources. Uh, the plans also have tiebreakers, that come into play if there aren't enough resources for all of the folks at the front of the line. Youth being the biggest tiebreaker with children getting top priority. So let, let's dive into that for a second. So, you know, if you're uh, a patient presenting uh, complications due to COVID uh, and you are a younger patient with, um, you know, fewer uh, compromising circumstances or, or you know, other uh, illnesses that might exacerbate your situation, you are going to be more likely to be placed on a uh, ICU bed with a ventilator 
than a patient who has you know advanced cancer or liver disease or some other uh, illness that would you know drastically reduce their life expectancy in terms of number of years, uh, they actually will be moved to a further down the line position. Uh, this is you know a a draconian, uh, painful process for hospitals to go through. But, you know, when resources are scare, scarce, rather, uh, this is the way that hospitals uh, have to go in order to provide, you know, uh, care to the most likely people to benefit from it. So the, the article continues, uh, in Idaho, Pregnant women who were at least 28 weeks along with viable pregnancies are next in line. Both states also give consideration to younger adults ahead of older adults. And Idaho's fourth tiebreaker, as if the patient, uh, I'm sorry, is if the patient performs a task that is vital to the public health crisis response. The final tiebreaker is a lottery system. If someone on the front line is given uh, a ventilator and doesn't show improvement within a set period of time, Idaho says they should be taken off so someone else can have a chance. And it, it talks about how, you know, after, shortly after Idaho enacted crisis standards of care statewide, uh, Dr. Stephen Nemerson with St. Alphonse Regional Medical Center in Boise said that, to his knowledge, no patient in the state had been removed from life support in order to provide the equipment to someone else, but he warned it would happen. It's bad today, he said. It's going to get much worse. I'm scared for all of us, Dr. Nemerson was quoted. So, you know, the, the article goes on and indicates, you know, does a patient's vaccination status matter? Short answer is no. In both Idaho and Montana, crisis standards of care don't consider whether a person has been vaccinated against COVID-19. Likewise, patients aren't denied care if they are injured in a car accident because they failed to wear a seatbelt or drove while intoxicated. So, you know, in, in the article it says, quote, vaccination status is not relevant to us when it comes to taking care of patients. We simply what they need they we simply do rather what they need us to do within the constraints and the resources that we have. Close quote. And that was from Dr. Shelley Harkins, Chief Medical Officer at St. Peter's Hospitals in Helena. So, you know, it, it this is as I said at the top, this is a, a situation that is impacting only a couple of states and some areas of four or five other states right now. But if the trend toward the uh, unvaccinated um, people who uh, are presenting COVID symptoms continues to grow and expand, uh, we could see this you know, arise in more and more areas around the country. And you know, this is something that we need to be concerned about. Um, and the, 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 the real, you know, big deal about this is that these uh, methods, this treatment option, this, this uh, uh, you know, critical care plan is 
not necessary if people would simply follow the guidelines that have been laid out from the medical and scientific experts and that, you know, the the media has been reporting and, you know, we've been covering here on this show for almost two years now, you know, and that is mask wearing, social distancing, uh, good hygiene and, you know, vaccination. If, you know, more and more people would follow these guidelines, the number of people heading to intensive care beds in hospitals would go down. And we have seen this happen both in other countries around the world, as well as in other areas of this country here. You know, we've talked in the past about a comparison between Louisiana and Vermont, which are two states on opposite ends of the, um, the vaccination spectrum, with Vermont being one of the highest, if not the highest, percentage vaccinated states in the nation, and Louisiana being, you know, one of the lowest, if not the lowest. You know, it, it just bears out what has been discussed, you know, in the media by our doctors, by our scientists, by, you know, many of the politicians, but not all, uh, over the course of the last two years that, you know, shows and, and bears up the statement that, you know, that by, by exercising the choice to, you know, take the healthy options, you are not only saving your life, but you're potentially saving the lives of countless others who may be denied treatment uh, that could save their lives simply because there are no resources available for uh, dealing with people who have chosen to not get vaccinated or chosen not to wear a mask and follow the, the public health safety guidelines. So the article goes into more detail and uh, gives some other scenarios, but uh, I will will read the con- the concluding paragraphs uh, as it talks about what can be done to get back to normal. Uh, health experts say getting vaccinated is the best way to protect protect against needing hospitalization because of coronavirus. Idaho's hospital crisis is caused primarily by a massive increase in the number of coronavirus patients needing hospital care. Idaho Department of Health and Welfare Director Dave uh, Jepson said Thursday, the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare is also advising people to be extra careful in every aspect of daily life, of daily life by wearing seatbelts, taking medications as prescribed, and avoiding high-risk activities like mountain biking until the crisis has passed. You know, and that just makes logical sense. If, you know, in addition to, you know, doing the common sense things that we've talked about in combating coronavirus, if we add to that just having a safer lifestyle uh, that minimizes the risk of us ending up needing advanced hospitalization, uh, that will go to help make sure that hospitals and the medical system has sufficient resources to care for all of us, including those who are, are suffering with uh, COVID-19. So some food for thought there. And, you know, another uh, reason to, you know, follow the guidelines and, and get vaccinated, wear your mask, practice your social distancing, do the things that we've been told, as I said, for nearly two years now, as, you know, the, the chief methods of curtailing the spread of, you know, COVID-19. 
And, you know, as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, there are some other elements to this pandemic uh, that are starting to appear in some news stories around the country. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about the other variants that are out there with COVID. Uh, so, you know, we, we will we'll jump into that next. So in the next uh, part of this, I uh, want to talk about uh, something else that came across my um, news radar over the last few days. And uh, I had mentioned this uh, in passing on a prior show, but uh, there was an article that came from the Boston Globe, and it talks about uh, other COVID variants and gives a little insight about what you need to know about Delta, Mu, Lambda, and more variants that are out there on the horizon. Um, the, the article you know, talks about uh, how all, all viruses change over time according to the World Health Organization. These different forms of a virus result of mutations are called variants. Uh, virus mutations can change the properties of virus, including how easily they spread, the severity of the disease they cause, or even the effectiveness of vaccines. And, you know, this is not a new uh, element. Uh, if you think about it, uh, every year we get or we're recommended to get a flu shot because the flu virus uh, mutates, you know, uh, on, an, on you know, a continual basis. So the prior vaccines are less and less effective on the mutated strains of the, of the flu, so new viruses must be developed. Well, the same uh, is now being reported as being true with uh, COVID-19. The, the variant that first uh, landed on this shore uh, called collectively the alpha variant, even though there are more than one variety of it, uh, as well as the beta variant were the earliest two that we faced in uh, 2020 and, uh, you know, led us to the, the number of hospitalizations and deaths that we're recording here. Um, but there are other ones. So, you know, if we're going to talk a little bit about the variants, um, there are a couple of things to consider. Um, the World Health Organization has been working since January of 2020 with authorities and scientists around the world to monitor the variants that are out there, uh, as well as, you know, what types of variants there are. So, you know, there are uh, three different types of variants. Um, one is what's called a variant of concern. Uh, second is uh, variants of interest, and the third is variants of high consequence. Now, as, as the names indicate, um, variants of interest are uh, variants that have you know, been identified and are being monitored, uh, but have yet to create a, a huge impact uh, on a host society. Variants of concern, uh, the next level up, are those variants that uh, have begun to or are showing a uh, low impact in societies uh, that they're being studied in. 
And then variants of high consequence are those variants that are actively spreading, actively growing, and creating new scenarios. Um, and also, you know, are showing the most resistance to methods of treatment of the three. And right now, the, uh, the variants that are out there, um, while we don't have any um, variants of high concern, uh, we do have, um, or high consequence rather, we do have variants of concern that are being tracked by the World Health Organization. And according to this article, again, from the Boston Globe, uh, there are currently four variants labeled variants of concern, alpha, beta, gamma, and delta. According to the CDC, uh, they, are ca they are classified this way because there is evidence of changes in traditionally, I'm sorry, there are evidence of changes in transmissibility, disease severity, or decrease in treatment effective compared to the original virus. Um, as I mentioned, the alpha variant and the beta variant are the ones that we are most familiar with. They are the ones that we have been impacted with uh, over uh, the course of uh, 2020 and, you know, created the majority of the cases that we've been reporting as well as um, the deaths that occurred in 2020 uh, coming into the early part of 2021. Um, the other variant that was uh, detected in Brazil is the gamma variant, um, first detected in November 2020. Uh, the gamma variant has some of the same mutations in its spike protein as the alpha and beta strains, which allow it to attach more easily to human cells. This is what makes it more transmissible. Uh, like the beta variant, it also reduces the effectiveness of some monoclonal antibodies used to treat patients with COVID. And of course, the Delta variant, uh, which was first detected in India in October 2020, uh, is the most contagious version of the virus so far, uh, as it is much more easily contracted than previous strange strains. It now represents more than 98% of COVID cases in the U.S., according to the CDC. So, you know, the, the concerns here and, and the CDC and the medical and scientific communities have been tracking these, um, you know, are well documented. It's what we've been dealing with now for, as I say, going on two years. Uh, but there are other variants of interest that the CDC and World Health Organization are uh, tracking and monitoring. And these are ADA, which is uh, a variant of interest, first detected in December 2020 in the United Kingdom and Nigeria. IOTA, the IOTA variant first detected in New York in November of 2020. Uh, Kappa, the variant first detected in India, again, October 2020, and Lambda, which is a variant that we've talked about on this show uh, as it is starting to um, make some inroads uh, in this, uh, this country as well. The Lambda variant first detected in Peru in December of 2020 and is now spreading rapidly through South America. 
um, found a, a lab study in Japan, uh, which is you know still under peer review, found that Lambda variant could be more resistant to vaccines than the original strain of COVID and could be highly infectious. Um, another uh, non-peer reviewed study from New York University found that uh, vaccines did generally work well against this variant. And then uh, one more is mu, which was added to the variants of interest list on August 30th of this year. Uh, first detected in Colombia in January, um, the World Health Organization's technical lead for COVID-19, Maria van Kerkhove, said that while mu's mutations suggest it could invade the immune it could evade the immune protection provided by natural infection or vaccination the delta variant is more concerning due to its transmissibility so you know we've gone from uh, thinking of having just a covid uh, uh, pandemic to having a pandemic with seven different types that we have to be concerned about all the more reason why we need to make sure that we are stepping up our game in terms of what we do to protect ourselves, our community, and our country from these variants. And you know, as we've talked about in this segment, um, wearing your mask, social distancing, and personal hygiene, uh, along with getting vaccinated, are the most important things that we as individuals can do to protect ourselves from these uh, COVID variants uh, now and in the future. So, you know, obviously there's a call to action there. Uh, if you haven't gotten vaccinated, please do get vaccinated. It's vitally important. And realize that the, uh, the crisis of care scenario that's going on in Idaho and Montana and some areas of the five other states I mentioned could potentially become more widespread uh, as we progress, if we continue on the path of ignoring what our scientists and our doctors are telling us. All right, so let's take our break here. We'll be right back after the break with more news of the political nature. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, and we'll be right back after the short break. Hi, folks, it's Steve from Fired Up. As you know, on this show, we spend a lot of time talking about COVID-19 and the effects it's having on our country, on our community, and on our families. I wanted to give you a couple of public service announcements that came from the University of California at San Francisco. The first is from Dr. Star Knight, uh, who is a, an MD at uh, the University of California at San Francisco. And the second is from Jonathan Butler, PhD, also from the University of California at San Francisco. Please take a moment and listen to these two important messages. And again, consider carefully uh, about getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, this is a public service announcement from us here at Fire It Up and from your friends at WJMSRadio.com. I first got the vaccine, number one, as obviously to protect myself, but, but honestly to protect my family. I've had direct discussions after getting the vaccine with members of my own family, and I, I think in general there was just kind of overall skepticism, especially in the black community, but in black and brown communities alike. Uh, there's a his, there are historic health inequities, and so there are reasonable concerns from members of those communities, and that's a community that I belong to as well. 
And that's why I had to inform myself and look at the data myself. The data was very reassuring. And one thing for me as a Black American was seeing how diverse the patient population was in each trial and, and feeling comfortable with that as well. There is lots of misinformation in the media and it's hard to combat that. And so I would go with trusted sources, medical professionals, people in your community, people in your family, ask about their experiences and get familiar. I first heard about the COVID vaccine. I was a little bit uneasy. Um, I didn't know much about it. Didn't know whether or not it was safe or effective. So I did a little bit of my research. Uh, I realized that it was safe, it was effective, and then the side effects were very minimal. Everyone has a choice to take the vaccine. And if you don't feel comfortable now, it's okay. One thing that is important about the vaccine is the vaccine is for us. African-Americans have higher rates of dying from COVID-19. The vaccine can actually save our lives. Not only save your life, but save the life of your family members. And so when people have a hesitation around taking the vaccine, again, you should consider what are the benefits of me taking the vaccine versus the risk of me getting or having long-term effects of actually getting COVID. And once you consider that, once you've talked with your doctor, then make a decision of whether or not it's okay to do it now. And welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. So let's pick up and talk a little bit about uh, some of the political news that occurred over the last week. Uh, and uh, one of the big stories, of course, was the rally on September 18th uh, down in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was called the Justice for J6 rally, and it was uh, promoted as a rally of support for the, quote, political prisoners, close quote, uh, those that had been incarcerated as a result of the insurrection that was held at the Capitol back on January 6th. Um, I spent uh, much of Saturday while doing other things, uh, watching live streaming of the event uh, across several different uh, video streams. Um, surprisingly, none of the major media outlets uh, carried it live. Um, they did report on it, and by major media, I mean um, I checked in with Fox News, I checked in with Newsmax, OAN, uh, MSNBC, CNN, uh, you know, and none of them were were carrying any of the event live and in real time. They did offer some, you know, video clips and so forth. Uh, the rally itself was uh, small. Um, the permit that had been pulled for the rally uh, had a maximum number of 700 as the people that were expected to attend. But by all counts that occurred and, and that I've seen reported, um, fewer than, you know, four to five hundred people showed up. And in fact, in, in looking at the videos, it clearly appeared that the so-called protesters were actually outnumbered by police and the media, probably on the order of two to one. Um, so, you know, the the results and the lessons learned from January 6th had a very, very uh, robust uh, security presence uh, on hand. There were, you know, security fences and apparatus uh, assembled all around the Capitol building. 
Um, the uh, police presence uh, consisted of not only the Capitol Police and the uh, Metropolitan Police for the district, but there were police departments from surrounding states as well as, we're told, uh, National Guard contingents and uh, state police from Virginia and Maryland that were put on ready reserve should they have been needed. Uh, the crowd, as I said, was small. The program itself, um, there was only about uh, two hours of speeches given. And, you know, uh, for the most part, the crowd was very well behaved. Uh, news outlets are reporting that uh, only about four or five people were arrested and uh, none for any, any serious violent charges. Um, I think one individual was arrested for possessing a handgun, uh, but the rest were, were more toward the line of just disorderly and you know, acting out and creating you know, some form of a public nuisance. So, you know, the, the rally itself uh, ended up being a very, very small event. And as the news media is reporting today, um, you know, was nowhere near the contentiousness of the gathering that occurred on January 6th. Uh, so, you know, on that, that's a, a good and positive thing. Messages were delivered both from the, uh, the rally organizers as well as some other keynote speakers who uh, spoke of the people who had been uh, arrested and you know, are still in uh, detention now awaiting trial. Uh, and you know, the calls went out to you know, free these people or you know, expedite their processing through arraignment uh, so that they can you know, post bond or whatever is needed. Uh, and you know, just you know, in general, um, really kind of a, a, a low-key event uh, that didn't live up to the hype that had been posted as to what potentially could have happened. Most notably, there were no political figures uh, present and at the rally. None of the political leaders uh, of either party uh, gave any speeches. And from you know, what news accounts have said, uh, the Republican Party and, and conservative outlets were telling people to, to stand down and not attend uh, for numerous reasons, including uh, the, the alleged reason that it was a trap and an opportunity for federal and state law enforcement to identify and harass them. Uh, and as a result, you know, there, there was no visible representation from any of the groups that were evident in the January 6th protest. And by that, I mean no identified members from, you know, the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, you know, uh, Antifa, Black Lives Matter. None of those groups were represented in any visible way at this protest. Um, there were people there. Uh, there were there were interviews given as as I scanned the five or six um, feeds that were coming out that I I tied to. There were a lot more, but uh, many of them were uh, of very very poor quality and and clearly uh, were were not focused on the broader political issue 
but served primarily as a platform for various uh, conspiracy theories and and you know wild speculation about uh, the the protest and you know the the alleged theft of the election um, by Democrats over the Republicans and so on and so forth. So you know, as I said, it it ended up being kind of a background event for me and my my day Saturday and any you know anticipated violence or upheaval did not materialize um, you know in in other news in other you know political and, and economic news uh, there was discussion this week as the debt ceiling and that is the amount of money the upper limit of the amount of money that the US government uh, has available to pay its bills, uh, that ceiling will be reached uh, sometime in mid-October. So Congress is uh, needed to uh, get together to uh, raise the debt ceiling limit. And, you know, this has created, you know, yet another controversy between uh, the right and the left uh, over, you know, what's going to happen with that. Uh, Senate Minority Leader McConnell has already specified that the Republicans are not going to vote to raise the debt limit, uh, threatening a, another government shutdown. And the Democrats are uh, threatening to move forward with raising the limit uh, under their reconciliation powers, just using their own uh, you know, majority in the Senate in order to make that happen. Um, there's another uh, thing, and this was an interesting article that I saw as I was you know, researching the debt limit. And uh, the article, which came from businessinsider.com, uh, talks about how the Biden administration could sidestep McConnell's refusal to pay America's bills by minting a $1 trillion platinum coin. And you know, the, the idea here uh, with this article is that the Treasury Department has the power and authority to issue uh, coins of any denomination it wants um, and, you know, could uh, mint a, a platinum coin with a face value of $1 trillion dollars and deposit that at the Federal Reserve in order to back up the, the bills that need to be paid by our government. So the article says, you know, uh, goes on to say, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has firmly dug in, uh, refusing GOP help to renew the U.S.'s ability to pay off its bills, known as the debt ceiling. Instead, the Kentucky Republican said it is up to Democrats to raise it in order to finance their social spending plans on health care, education, and child care. And he insists he is not bluffing. But the, the conundrum that they face uh, could have a coin-sized solution. A loophole in the law that prescribes the type of coins that can legally be minted in the U.S. theoretically allows the Treasury Department to mint a $1 trillion platinum coin deposit it at the Federal Reserve, and then continue paying its bills at, as normal. So, you know, we talk about the debt ceiling, 
Um, the debt ceiling places a fixed limit on the total amount of money the Treasury Department can borrow in order to fund government activities, and Congress has to vote to either raise or suspend that limit from time to time So, you know, a as the federal debt grows ever larger. Uh, the Biden administration, according again to this article from Business Insider, the Biden administration and Democrats are pressuring Republicans to back down ruling out raising the uh, debt limit on their own and reminding the GOP they played a role in racking up $8 trillion in new debt under the previous administration of former President Donald Trump. There's no clear path out for lawmakers as they confront a barrage of deadlines this month, including another spending brawl uh, that could end in a government shutdown. Um, you know, this is, you know, not the first time that we have seen this. Uh, it happened back in 2017, where the Republicans uh, also were calling for a, you know, a, a freeze in the debt limit uh, and were battling uh, Democrats at the time on what to do about it. It happened prior to that. Uh, those of you may recall something called a sequester where uh, the Republicans uh, got a, a measure passed that required uh, every dollar of new spending be met with a dollar of budget cut from somewhere else in the budget to maintain a, quote, balanced budget. Um, this is, you know, as I said, this is nothing new. We have seen this occur from time to time. Uh, it is just a, another political game that's played by uh, one side uh, against the other in order to try to either advance their agenda or ad advance their, their minority position uh, or to force the majority party to uh, accede to what it is saying and uh, come up with legislation to reduce the size of government uh, to live within its means. Um, there have been, you know, uh, laws passed in prior administrations, uh, including a law that requires a balanced budget, which is still on the books, and which is kind of the, the operating guideline under which these battles take place. Um, you know, it, it is, you know, something that goes on from time to time. However, it is a game with very real consequences. Uh, should the uh, U.S. economy default on its debt, that is, not be able to pay its bills, it would trigger a cascade failure of economic systems around the globe, uh, which would be devastating not only to the U.S. economy, but to the economies of all of our, our friends and allies and, and many other countries around the world uh, who rely on the free flow of capital in order to fund what it is they do. Uh, the, the default on debt uh, would send financial markets into chaos and government payments raging, ranging from Social Security checks to military paychecks could abruptly halt. Um, the White House is also warning about potential cuts for programs at the state and local level like Medicaid. So, you know, it, it, is, it is clear that 
you know, we, we have seen this before. Um, hopefully, clearer heads will prevail and a compromise will be worked out in order to um, you know, secure a raise in the debt limit so that the government will not default on its bills. Um, many people, many lawmakers consider that you know, a, a doomsday scenario that is you know, too painful for either side to stomach. So hopefully we'll see again as cooler heads prevail and a solution presents itself. And this article also mentioned the, the possibility of minting a $1 trillion platinum coin, uh, depositing it in the Fed to cover uh, U.S. bill paying capabilities. Um, the, the article concludes with a paragraph that says, of course, Treasury officials have long ruled out using the trillion dollar platinum coin as a solution to the debt ceiling arguing that Congress should do its job and raise the ceiling itself. And I would concur with that paragraph saying, you know, our lawmakers need to, to step up and, you know, recognize that these bills must be paid, that the, the uh, faith of the U.S. economy uh, should never be put into question because of a debt ceiling uh, limit or breach. So, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, in our communications with our elected officials, that we are communicating uh, our desire that, you know, they, they come to an agreement on the debt ceiling and move forward with that so the full faith and, um, and, and strength of the U.S. economy is not damaged. Um, and, you know, the, the last story we'll deal with on this episode um, is one that we have touched on in prior episodes as it deals with um, gerrymandering that is now underway in this country as a result of the completion of the 2020 uh, census. And this uh, article written by Ali Mutnick of Politico.com uh, talks about the coming battles and what the redistricting uh, efforts by uh, the GOP in the states that it controls uh, is going to mean to the Democratic chances of retaining control of the Senate and the House. Well, the House, actually, the Senate doesn't get impacted by redistricting. Um, and, you know, the article came out on the 15th. It's on Politico.com. And, you know, it, it leads off with you know, how the Democratic uh, gains that they made in the 2020 elections and prior elections uh, could disappear from, you know, f from the map entirely based on how GOP map makers are drawing up the new districts. And, you know, what, what the article says, among other things, is that Democrats got their first taste of a shrinking playing field on Tuesday when Republican state lawmakers in Indiana unveiled a draft congressional plan that would transform the state's most competitive district into a relatively safe red seat by siphoning off voters in deep blue uh, Marion County, which includes Indianapolis. And to, to understand that more, what that means is uh, when 
you know, GOP leaders at the state level are redrawing these districts, those districts that are currently uh, heavily um, either Democratic or have a large Democratic contingent are being redrawn with more Republican voters uh, and the Democrats are being moved over to adjacent districts that they already hold. So basically, they are, you know, eliminating Democrats from certain districts where, you know, it will be categorized as being, quote, purple, close quote. We have a mix of the two parties into districts that are more heavily weighted toward the Republican side of the ledger or, or more red. And basically what that does is that takes a, a potentially competitive district uh, from an election standpoint for Democrats and moves it off the table. And even though it increases the number of Democrats in an already blue district, it the net effect is to strengthen the Republican positions in states uh, by making these districts less susceptible to Democratic uh, challenges. So, you know, the article talks about Indiana's fifth district where in the last election cycle, both parties spent well over $10 million, became an easy uh, win for freshman GOP Senator Victoria, I'm sorry, GOP Rep Victoria Sparts. Clearly, uh, this is a bit of kneecapping to anyone who's interested in running as a Democrat in Indiana uh, District 5, said Christina Hale, the 2020 Democratic nominee, nominee who narrowly lost to Sparts. The deck is stacked, Hale said, and it's, it's not impossible for Democrats to seriously contest uh, the seat again, but it won't be competitive soon. Uh, we probably won't see a real race for a number of years. Um, you know, the article you know, highlights the fact that even with Congress more narrowly divided than it's been in the last two decades, Democrats are stuck on defense, uh, still scarred from 2020, when they vowed to send Republicans deeper into the minority, only to end up losing 13 incumbents of their own. So now, because of of redistricting and gerrymandering, Republicans get a total reset in many of the places where they had their closest calls last year. So, you know, we can look at, besides Indiana, they can shore up their increasingly purple suburbs with ruby red rural areas and competitive districts in places like South Carolina, Missouri, Indiana, North Carolina, Florida, Utah, and perhaps most importantly, Texas, where Republicans are poised to bolster at least a half dozen vulnerable members. So, you know, it, it, it's something that we've talked about before, how, you know, using the gerrymandering process, uh, the Republicans continue to expand and deepen their hold on the states that they control right now through state houses and the governor's offices, and, you know, lock in their control of, you know, state politics uh, through, you know, the, the midterms coming up, through the, the national election in 24 and out beyond that. And, you know, right now, given the fact that Republicans control 
these districts uh, almost exclusively. Uh, there is little that Democrats can do except to keep you know, pushing candidates up to the front to compete as best they can. Um, and, you know, it, it's important for us as voters to understand that, you know, one party control of a state really uh, ties the hands of, you know, the, the voters in that it, it ends up being it doesn't matter, you know, if you're a Democrat, who you vote for, because the Republicans are going to win the state. Democratic Senator Sean Patrick Maloney of New York, uh, who is the chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, noted that the first priority is to defend those incumbent positions. Um, the Democratic or DCC's own post-election autopsy revealed the shortcomings of its 2020 game plan where they spent you know, a tremendous amount of money uh, going after uh, Republicans and a lot less money in shoring up their own defenses in uh, incumbent positions. Uh, you know, a as he said, uh, it is, you know, the, the, the key is to hold, uh, to hold a, the castle. The key is to, you know, hold the line on those positions that you own uh, and, and make sure that they are properly funded. Um, he also claims, you know, it was a strategic uh, error to spend so much money against Republicans when many Democrat incumbents needed more help. Uh, the obligation is on the other team to win seats. We already hold the majority, quote M Maloney said. So my job is to hold the ones I got and to beat a few of them. And we're going to do that. And I can do that with a tight, disciplined battlefield. So, you know, it, it's clear that the Democrats have an uphill battle. Um, the article cites, you know, of the 33 GOP incumbents who won in 2020 by eight points or fewer, which is a generous margin for a House race, 15 represent states where Republicans have total control over redistricting, according to a Politico analysis. Of the 33 Democratic incumbents who won by the same margin, only five live in a state where their party will craft new maps. So, you know, as I said, it's an uphill battle. Um, the, the Republicans right now uh, control the table. You know, in, in the majority of states, they are the ones who are drawing the new district maps. So obviously they are going to draw maps that closely benefit their party. Now, there's legislation uh, at the federal level uh, that would look to eliminate uh, partisan gerrymandering and appoint uh, bipartisan state commissions to draw redistricting lines. Um, you know, presumably that would be uh, dare I use the word fair um, between you know the two parties? So you know if if that gets passed, it gives the opportunity for some of these redistricting maps to be overturned and to have you know more um, party equal maps drawn that represent the population by population and not by voting preference. 
So we will see how that turns out. We will keep you posted on you know what goes on with Republican redistricting. Uh, it is uh, anticipated that maps will start to come out over the next few months heading toward the end of the year. And uh, then we'll probably do a special segment on the show on redistricting and talk about what it looks like for the future. So that's going to wrap up our show for this week. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. I greatly appreciate it. If you have thoughts or comments on anything that I've uh, talked about this week, please send an email to firedupradio at uh, yahoo.com. I love to, to hear comments from those of you that are listening. And, you know, feel free to raise a question. We'll discuss it on the show. Please make sure, as always, that you're staying safe. Please get your vaccine, if possible. Uh, The Delta variant of the coronavirus is uh, still raging and is is moving around the country uh, pretty consistently. So let's make sure that we're doing everything we can to stay safe. Thank you all for listening each week. As I said, I appreciate it greatly. I look forward to speaking with all of you again in seven days. Started yesterday, and we're already late.